Well, hello, everyone. So good to see you. Hey, just want to say thank you so much for joining this online service. Man, our heart here at ABF is that everybody is connected to a local church of believers. And so this video is intended to be just a supplement, whether it's an extra teaching in your week or if you're out of town, that's our heart for this teaching. So thank you so much for joining us here today. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. Wanted to let you know about a few things going on. First of all, if you wouldn't mind texting us at 97,000, that's 97 with three zeros, uh, text us any prayer request. We would love to pray for you this week, wherever you are, we'd love to pray for you. That would be great. That's the first thing. Also, if you're interested in some of the other things that are going on here around the church, the best way is to go on our website at agorabible.org. You can see what ministries are going on, the different events that we have uh, going here in the next few weeks, uh, different ways to connect in groups, ways to serve, etc. It's all there on the website. Finally, thank you so much for your continued generosity. They're the only reason why we stay afloat and can do all the things that we do is because of your support. So you can also give online through the website as well. And now, without further ado, let's get to today's teaching. Well, thank you, Josh, and thanks for joining us online. Uh, so good to be together with you each week. Hopefully, you're really blessed and encouraged uh, with our time spent in the Word, working specifically through this passage or this book of uh, 1 Corinthians. This week, we're in chapter 6, and we're picking up uh, where Josh left off last week. Really thought he did an excellent job with that. And I've titled this message, The Talk. And uh, I don't know what comes to mind when you hear the, those words, the talk. For me, the, the talk represents one of those conversations that really most parents dread having with their kids, explaining to their kids God's design for sex. Like, oh man, every, every parent kind of gets squirmy with that idea. They don't look forward to it. And probably one of the, what I would suggest, one of the biggest reasons why that is, is because uh, really, it's an awkward conversation because you're competing with the culture that's in a race to communicate things to your kids. So there's this undue pressure kind of behind the scenes that you're wanting to say, man, I want to get a head start before they learn some of these things from the culture. And you realize the pressure that that creates. You're just like, well, maybe I have to have a conversation with my kids younger than their, maybe their maturity is capable of just uh, working through the conversation. So it's kind of this, this pressure-filled talk, but really the alternative, if you're not going to be the one that has that conversation with your kids, the alternative is for them to learn about things uh, related to sex from social media, from the television, or in my opinion, probably the worst place for them to learn about it is from our crazy school systems. So Paul, as he's writing this letter, as he's uh, jotting these words, he's realizing that the environment that the Corinthian believers are immersed in is one that's pointing them the exact opposite direction of what he's wanting to call them to. He's real, realizing that he's got ground to make up. He has lost ground because if you think about it, even the most mature believer in this Corinthian church would only have been following Jesus for about three years. And so some very young believers... I've mentioned before that that culture was really 
sexually confused and perverted. And in fact, they were known for kind of having, I've talked about this, having a patron god. In other words, the main god that they worshipped in the city of Corinth. Her name you're probably familiar with is Aphrodite. And what they had is they had a massive temple in the, the center of town where worship took place. And their worship was not what worship looks like present day. Instead, their worship even included over a thousand temple prostitutes. That tells you something about the broken state of things. Supply and demand tells you that, man, if there's that many prostitutes needed, that there's lots of people being misled. In fact, they had even coined a term named to Corinthianize. It was a verb to describe having sex with a prostitute because it was so prevalent in their city. So in the same way that last week he was talking about the way that their confusion about lawsuits and the law and how it's supposed to work had snuck its way into the church, he's realizing also that the sexual misconduct of that day was also working its way into the church and leading them astray. They were carrying a skewed mindset about sex that was really bringing that into their daily Christian life. So Paul has his work cut out for him, if you will, in this talk that he's about to give. And I would suggest that it's, he has his work cut out for us as well. We're in a place as a country, as a nation, as a culture where there's so much sexual confusion, we don't even know which way is up. And so we're looking forward to seeing what God's word has to speak to us about this oh so important topic, the topic of sex. Let me pray before we dive in. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this chance to gather around a, a tough topic, but an important topic, a, a topic that can be a beautiful thing within the confines of your uh, design, God. I ask that you'd speak to us. There's none of us listening that hasn't in some way been impacted by our culture, by our world as it relates to this. And so we pray that we'd open up our minds to what you want to speak to us, that you'd be moving and acting even in this time. In Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right, so 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're starting in verse 12. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. All right, we'll just stop there just uh, briefly because just into the intro to the topic. Basically what's happening is he's confronting or correcting some of the, the false thinking of that day. Like co correcting the mantra of that day and age. The mantra you see repeated in quotes there. What does it say? All things are lawful for me. Now, there's some different suggestions on this, what it's talking about. Most or some suggest the idea that there's some confusion about Christian liberty and what was allowed and what wasn't allowed. I would suggest the, the second possibility, the possibility that they had bought into the thinking of that day is if it's legal as far as it goes to the, the, the government, if it's permissible by them, it's permissible for me. A lot of times we have that same confusion today thinking like, well, you know, if the law permits it, you know, if I'm allowed to smoke, then it should be fine. If marijuana is legalized, that's fine. If abortion is permitted in my state, then I am able to do that. 
If I'm allowed to have unlimited sexual partners as a consenting adult, then I have the freedom and liberty to do that. But what he's pointing out to us is just because it's permitted by the law doesn't mean that it's permitted by the standards that our God has set for us. He explains it even in those two lines to some degree and further later on. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Helpful, the Greek word for that is sumphiro, can also be translated profitable. Basically, this is the idea. Sexual sin costs much more than we realize. It's not profitable. It's not beneficial. It doesn't help us. It hurts us. It hurts others. It has so much potential for damage. In fact, one could say that more people have been damaged by sexual sin than drug or alcohol use combined. It is one of the more destructive things on this planet when misused. John MacArthur points to Proverbs 5, 3 through 5 as a description of what it looks like when misused. It says, For the lips of a forbidden woman drip with honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. Basically explaining the, the simple principle is what you see is not always what you get. That's so often the truth with sin. It advertises one thing. It promises one thing. It, it makes all kinds of claims and then underdelivers every single time. I don't know if you've been burnt by something before that you thought maybe even just in the, in the purchasing arena, something that you thought was gonna do one thing, then you get it home and you're like, this is nothing at all what I thought it. I was thinking back to one online purchase that I'd made many years back, and this is a silly one. You're gonna laugh at your pastor for this, but they had this advertisement for these ab belts. Do you remember these things? Basically, the idea was you put this belt on and it sent like this electric current through the belt and you could just sit and watch TV and eat chips while you're developing a six pack. I'm like, man, sign me up for this thing. So I order this crazy thing. Of course, it was just 1995. Order this thing, get it home. And I was sitting there watching television. All of a sudden, I just feel this like burning in my stomach. I take this, this ab belt off and I'd literally burned across my entire stomach and no six pack to be found. You see, that's a little bit of how sex works. Big promises. It's supposed to be so fulfilling and, and, and freeing, and it does just the opposite. Exactly as I described there, leaves us burned, leaves us hurt, leaves us broken. It always leaves us on the other side with regret. Describes the other side of going outside of God's parameter as it relates to this. It says, but I will not be dominated by anything. Dominated, another, another interpretation of that word would be enslaved. It's interesting how many things as far as sin, or sin is related make promises of freedom. But once you start going down that road, you realize exactly what it does. It actually enslaves us. It leaves us in bondage. That's so often how sex works 
outside of God's design between a man and a woman in the context of marriage for a lifetime. When we go outside of that bound, outside of those boundaries, man, it leaves us enslaved, addicted, hurt, broken, regret. He's warning us against that. Just because it's legal doesn't mean it's not going to leave us in bondage. There's no such thing as a quick, casual sexual encounter that's harmless. Instead, we learn the same thing that Samson learned many years back. The most powerful man on the planet at that time discovered that Delilah left him in bondage and headed towards ruin. We want to be free from anything in the Christian life that has control over us. Anything that, that starts to get a grip on, on us, anything that we have to say, man, I am so addicted to that. I have to keep going back to that in order to be satisfied. It can be in even some of the more uh, thing, things that we think are just, oh, little simple addictions, whether it's sugar, whether it's alcohol, whether it's overeating, whether uh, smoking, whatever it may be, anything that has bondage over us should be something that we're pushing off and getting some control over. So he starts with that warning. That's just our very first verse. There's more, obviously, to go. Verse 13 says, Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both, both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise up, raise us up by his power. All right, so let's explain that a little bit. Scripture's constantly, if you think about it, confronting false earthly wisdom. You can tell the earthly wisdom because it's in quotes. Those would, would have been beliefs of that day, mantras, as I mentioned. He's confronting the biological rationalization of that time. What do I mean by biological rationalization? What does he say? Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. What do we hear? What's present day? How do we say something like that? Well, I'm only human. God made me with a, as a sexual being. He made me to need sex. When I get hungry, I eat. When I have the drive for sex, I should be able to participate kind of belittling God's design for sex and bringing it down to just a, a simple physical uh, expression, something that's just doesn't really mean anything. It's just a, a, as simple as I'm hungry, I eat, I need sex, I have sex. That's what he's saying. He's confronting that idea. That was the first rationalization. You see the second rationalization right next to it. And God will destroy both one and the other. What is he saying by that? What's the basically the idea that someone was thinking, hey, if I, I feel the urge, I should be able to do it. Not to mention, this body is only temporal. What difference does it make if I partake? What difference does it make if this is only going to be something that's destroyed? Why not partake? So Paul has some reprogramming, obviously, to do here. He's basically giving them a, a new replacement slogan. Do you see it there in the text? The body is meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. It's critical to understand the designer's intent. He's made, he's made and designed this us for a purpose. What does he say? We're made for the Lord. 
We're his. We belong to him. We're not just an object of sexual perversion to just do whatever we feel like to follow whatever lust or urge we currently have. We're intended to be for the Lord. Not a purposeless lump of cells, but carefully crafted by the Lord for the Lord. That's the biological argument that so many buy into, but what a, a hopeless existence that leads to. Well, I'm just here as a kind of a, a throwaway, a, a piece, a lump of cells. That's what we try to convince ourselves as it relates to the murder of babies. Same mentality can carry over into adults. Uh, uh, this mentality of, well, I'm just, I'm just here and I'm just kind of purposeless. We're floating on this rock out in space. What is the difference? Why can't I follow my urges like any other animal in the wild? But the truth is, we're not just something disposable. We have value and purpose and meaning. And the value and purpose and meaning that we have is our attachment to the Lord. We see it there right there in the text. The Lord is for the body. In other words, he's not indifferent to it. He made it to be his dwelling place. At the end of the section, where he's more specific, he talks about being bringing him glory. We get to represent him to the world. Later in chapter 15, he's going to explain and confront the confusion about the resurrection. But right here, you get a little hint of it in verse 14. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. In other words, God may destroy food and stomach and that may pass, but this body will be resurrected and will live for eternity. There's nothing in scripture that talks about our body being destroyed. We're going to have a resurrected version 2.0, absolutely. But we're not completely finished with this body. This body will be part A and part B is to come. I'm looking forward to my Fabio hair and my Solo Flex six pack. But this idea that God isn't finished, he intends to raise this body for eternity or coming resurrection has implications for today, for here, for now. We're not to take it lightly. I am for the Lord and the Lord is for this body. Continue in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the member of Christ and make the members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute, prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. All right, we'll pause there. Basically here, this idea of members of Christ. When you, when you embrace Jesus Christ through faith, scripture teaches, specifically Romans 12, 5, 5 explains to us, us that we become one with Jesus Christ that we're united to him, that there's the, a bond that happens that can't be separated, an inseparable bond, one might say. I was seeing just this week online, this really cool picture. You can see it there on the screen. It's a picture that was taken in 1899 of some, a man named Samir and a man named Mohammed. Basically, two men that met even in their childhood as orphans in an orphanage. And what was interesting about these two men 
is Muhammad was born completely blind and basically unable to navigate anything on his own. Samir, on the other hand, was born with great sight and great vision and a great order, but unfortunately, he, had, he was a dwarf and unable to use his legs. So basically, they spent their life partnering together with Samir riding on Muhammad's back, where Samir would call out commands and directions, and Muhammad would go wherever he was being led. Basically, a partnership. One needed the other. They couldn't survive without the other. Now, that illustration only carries so far. Obviously, God is not dependent on us, but the picture is the same of the dependence that we have on him, that we're inseparable, that we're brought together. And so we belong to the Lord. We're united with him. And so he makes the illustra illustration. He, he brings up the point. He's like, well, if that's the case, if you're separated, how unfair Thinkable would it be for you to bring Jesus with you, to bring him along with you in your sin with a prostitute? You can take that into any sexual sin, any kind of perversion. How unthinkable to bring Jesus in when you're watching that online. How unthinkable to bring Jesus in when you're going in, your, in this place that you know you're not supposed to be with someone of the opposite sex. You can see where the argument that he's taking. If we're inseparable with God, he's with us. Man, you can't imagine taking him along. Paul makes another point here. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? What does he mean with that? When you're joined to a prostitute, it becomes one body with her. It's the same principle that's basically throughout scripture that happens upon having sex, as it was outlined all the way back in Genesis 2, the two will become flat, one flesh. It means that there's a unifying factor that happens in the act of having sex. It's not just a biological function. It's not just for procreation. It's something supernatural that God has designed to allow two people within the, the, the marriage, uh, within the marriage relationship to unite and become one. And so what he's saying, this means of unifying people, you don't want to be unified with a, a prostitute or really in this case, anyone who's not your spouse. He's explaining this principle of how it works, this bonding thing that happens. I was reading this a uh, little, uh, little bit this week of how the scientific or secular scientific community even understands this concept as it relates to sex. They call, don't call it be two becoming one flesh. They have a scientific term for it. They call it pair bonding. And the conclusion I was reading in the science journal this week is this. It says, when an individual chooses to engage in casual sex, breaking bond after bond, and each new sexual partner, the brain forms a new synaptic map of one night stands. The pattern becomes the new normal for that individual. When and if the individual later desires to find a more permanent partner, the brain mapping will have to be overcome, making a permanent bond more difficult to achieve. You see, Sex is different 
than just a physical appetite. It's a spiritual union that transcends the physical, uniting two people. So a casual hookup just doesn't work. It doesn't take this connection into account. There's a reason why those with many partners have this sense of emptiness inside of them. This is a warning and a caution against that. What does he say is the alternative in verse 18? He says, flee from sexual, sexual immorality. Every other sin in a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? We'll stop there for a little more explanation. Basically, this is a repeated theme. Do you, do you catch that statement? Really, he's, he's said it now uh, six times just in this chapter alone. Do you not know? In other words, at this point, it's not new information that they're lacking. It's imp uh, uh, applying what they already know. He's saying, have you not heard? Do you not know? Has this not sunk in? Have I not already mentioned these things to, to you? Sex is different than every other sin. Sex is outside of marriage is different than every other sin. It's a unique in that it creates a connection. What does it say? Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, at first, upon reading this, you be, might be like, well, what is that actually saying? You read that description and you're like, Paul doesn't really uh, elaborate on that. But think about what we've already uh, uh, expounded on so far, what he's already covered, what he's al already touched on. This simple basis of what sets it apart from other sins, I think can be really visually demonstrated in just a, a unique way. I wanted to uh, take a second for a visual illustration. Let's just check this out for a second. Spending many years as a young adults pastor, I ended up doing a, a bunch of weddings, at least uh, earlier in my ministry uh, life, uh, a little bit less during this uh, more recent stretch. But I don't know if you've been at one of these weddings where they do a uniting of the sand. Sometimes it's unity candles. Sometimes it's sand that they use. And the sand is supposed to be a visual demonstration of two lives that are coming together. So basically, one person first, the, uh, you'd have maybe the, the girl go first. She'd pour a little bit of sand into the one jar to picture part of her life entering. Then the guy puts a little bit of, of the sand in there representing his. They kind of go back and forth and it kind of uh, adds some in there, then add a little bit more. I think you guys have seen this, I imagine, at some point. And before you realize it, they've kind of created this kind of cool uh, blend of the two different worlds kind of merging into one, one picture like that. You get the idea. But in that, in that process, they show two becoming one flesh. But what I think is interesting with that is when you think, when you try to play that in reverse, once those two are united, if somebody tells you, all right, it's time for you to start pulling those two apart. You're like, well, uh, I can maybe get a little bit off of this, but eventually the possibility of taking the two apart that had been joined is a complete impossibility. It's a complete impossibility. And that's exactly what he's saying is how it works with sex. 
what we were intended was it was supposed to be part of the marriage commitment, the uniting. And when you try to separate it, you realize, man, I can't do it. And the thing that happens is you end up with people that have given a little part of themselves to one person and a little part of them to themselves to another person. And before they realize it, they feel empty and lost and confused and no longer able to connect with other people. That's what he's warning us against. That's what he's cautioning us against. He's saying it's so different because it's a supernatural connection that God has allowed for and it's meant to be saved for marriage. And if not, it is going to leave us damaged and broken. But what I want us to hear even now, just before we go further with that, some people are saying, yeah, man, that's me. That's a description of where I'm at. Some people are saying that's, that's what I've been through. But here's the wonderful reminder is that we have a God that can make things new for even the person that's going down the furthest roads of this. God's like, man, I love taking something that seems like it's beyond repair and bringing it back. I think this is one of those visual representations that I think at least sticks in my brain. Let's continue just in the text here. Verse 19 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? So the second point that he's tra trying to make here is a, something that we've talked about already in the past, is he's made the idea that you're a temple. We're revisiting that idea that a temple that you're intended to be the host for God. So again, making the case for all of this as to why, man, you can't mess with this. If once a, a temple's been defiled, man, how is it used for worship? So he's bringing us back to some of these basic realities of who we are. We're a temple. We've been bought with a price. Here's the, the idea that he explains too that I think is important to catch at the beginning of that section. He tells us then to flee from sexual immorality. In response to all this, once you know this is true, once you know that the danger that lurks when we go outside of God's plan, he gives us really a basic thing. He says, run, flee, get out of there, run, forest, run. He say, it might seem like it's non, not very complicated, but he's like, man, the best thing you can do with sexual temptation is to run from it, avoid it. You're, you're in a relationship with somebody that you'd start to notice, man, this is just starting to go in the wrong direction. Cut it off, run from it. You're in a, a pattern of viewing things. You have some habits. You're like, turn that off, shut it down, get parameters up, get accountability, run from it, avoid it, stay away from it. That's the idea here. Just because you're tempted by something doesn't mean that you're enslaved to it. You have the freedom to run. You're no longer entangled. Before Jesus Christ rescued us, we were trapped in our sin. Now we have the freedom to run. I was reading this week, I thought it was interesting in a circus, how it works is that a lot of times, maybe you've been to a circus and you've seen those massive elephants and then you look down at these elephants and you're like, man, how do they control those massive beasts? And they usually have a small ring that's around their ankle and the ring is attached to a chain that goes back to a stake that's just plugged into the ground. 
I've, I've, I can't remember ever noticing that, but when you actually think about it, you're like, I guess I have noticed that. But what it is, is something that they start training elephants, even when they're still tiny, I guess tiny is a relative term, but even when they're young, is they put that stake in the ground, and because they're weak, they no longer, they don't have the ability to pull free from it. But what they've discovered is the same stake that kept them from moving when they were little, when they grow up as adults, they don't realize that at any point they have the strength that they could pull out of that. Similar for those who are in Christ. We stay tangled, but the invitation is for us to run, to be set free. We don't have to live like that any longer. We'll wrap up with the last uh, verse here. It says, you are, this is kind of a conclusion. He says, you are not your own for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Kind of one final mic drop statement. If you think about it, he's making this one principle that you are not your own, that you were bought with a price. This is terminology that they'd be familiar with in that day, day and age. They were very familiar with what slavery looked like and how that played itself out. Even in American history, it's a dark part of our, our, our past. But basically the idea is the exchange of resources for the ownership of somebody. Now, upon first reading, you might be like bought at a, a, at a price. You're just like, am I a, a slave that was purchased? That doesn't seem right. For us to fully understand what actually took place is we were once slaves and our freedom has been bought. In fact, it's important to look at 1 Peter 1.18 says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. You see, there was a payment that was made for those of us who are in Christ. That payment came in the form of a blood payment, and that payment was for our ransom. You see, we were enslaved, and we've been set free to a new master. Not a, not a master like you'd think in the perverted way. All we have is examples of broken masters, but the perfect master, the master that has our best interest in mind, the pastor that, the master that made that blood sacrifice for us, the master that has amazing plans for our present uh, period of time and our future. Such an amazing exchange that's been that's happened for us. You've been bought with a price for us to keep bringing back that back to our mind. We're no longer our own. I don't get to just operate and do whatever I feel like, follow whatever urge I have, following the flesh. But instead, he's saying you were bought with a price. And because of that, what does it say? So because you were bought with a price, glorify God in your body. Since you were purchased, since you were ransomed, since you were set free, now the life that you're called to do is to live for his glory. What does that mean? Making sure that everything I do makes him look good as his representative. It's kind of like this idea, you, you have one job to do. Have you ever heard somebody say that as a joke? Oh, you had one job to do. You couldn't get that right. Really, that's the Christian life. You have one job to do to point to him and make him look good by representing him to the world around us through our actions. That's saying, man, I'm not going to partake in things that I know 
are harmful. I've been redeemed. I've been set free. Now I want to live my life for him. That's the Christian life, not a permission to go and go back to some of the old patterns when you were enslaved, but to live in the freedom with a new master. And that comes with some awesome benefits if you think about it. Think about it. The, the things that cripple us with fear, you're like, man, I don't have anything to, be, to fear anymore. I, I am the possession of Jesus. Do you think he's not going to take care of his possessions? Do you not think that he has your best interest in mind? All of these things we could unpack so much further, but such depth to God's word. But the big idea here and the, the talk that Paul wanted to have Man, don't go down that road. What the world thinks is going to satisfy that always proves to be a liar. Let me pray as we wrap up. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this chance to spend some time in your word for us to be reminded of maybe some principles that we've heard and we've uh, understood over the years, but we've maybe drifted from. God, forgive us for some of the sexual roads that we've gone down. God, bring us back to within the parameters that you've designed. You have our best interest in mind. You have the best plan for us. You know what's best as our designer. God, I pray that you give us the courage and strength to run away from sin and run towards you. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you that you can take even the most broken person and restore and make something new out of us. We praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.